You want to make your way on back to your seats? What we're going to do uh, this morning is we are going to read some fairly large portions of Luke 22 and 23 uh, and, and 24. And so if you have a Bible, I really encourage you this morning to open it up. Get yourself situated in Luke 22 because that's where we're going to start. If you've got that on your phone, you can do it there. If you brought a Bible with you, there are, uh, you can use that. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one but you want to follow along, which I encourage you to do. You can go and grab one. My goal, uh, our goal, anyone who teaches up here on Sunday mornings, our, our hope is to simply say what the text says. Wherever we happen to be on a Sunday morning, we want to be faithful to just speaking what Scripture says. And there are times where uh, we just can step back and let Scripture really speak for itself, which is a lot of what we're going to do this morning. So if you've got a Bible, uh, open up to there. Luke 22 is where we're going to start. Uh, but as you get situated, I want to tell you about an intersection. It's in south-central Nebraska. In fact, the way that you get to it is that you would drive up to St. Joe, you would hop on Highway 36 going west, and you would drive across northern Kansas. Um, there's a string of, of small towns. It feels like they get progressively smaller the further west that you go. And eventually what happens is you hit uh, Kansas Highway 8. It runs north and south. If you take a right and head north on Highway 8, it leads you to the Nebraska border. And when you get to the border, Kansas Highway 8 becomes Nebraska Highway 10. It gets a two-point upgrade when it switches over the border there. Nebraska Highway 10 uh, travels north there through southern Nebraska for what feels like 10 and a half hours of corn. And eventually, you come to an intersection. That intersection is with O Road. And it is in a town called Macon, Nebraska, which is in Franklin County, Nebraska. There's no sign when you enter into Macon, Nebraska. In fact, when you get to Macon, Nebraska, all it is is the intersection. No stop sign. There's a Methodist church on the right side of the road. There's a Lutheran church just a little ways down on the left side of the road. And that is all you see besides corn. My family and I, we went to Macon, Nebraska um, about this time of year four years ago. My grandfather had recently passed away, and he was having a memorial service there at the Lutheran Church in Macon, Nebraska. And I had never even heard of the place before. I'd certainly never been there. And so when my parents said, this is where we're going, and I needed to be able to come back uh, for Sunday morning, uh, Melody and I had to find it. And finding it on your Google Maps requires some work. I mean, you've got to zoom yourself in to where Macon would show up. But even once the word Macon shows up, you can't actually see the intersection. So you have to keep zooming until you basically get to where your Google Maps or your Apple Maps has gone in as far as it will go. And you will find O Road and 10 Highway, Franklin County, Nebraska, Macon. The intersection takes a little bit of work to find, but what I discovered that day while we were in Macon, Nebraska, is that the place was actually beautiful. 
it's not the kind of beauty that we would normally associate with, uh, like beautiful landscape. You know, it's not the beach. It's not the mountains. It's not, um, you know, there's not beautiful architecture like in a city or something. It really is corn. But there's something beautiful about the simplicity of the area. And what I discovered over the course of this day in Macon, Nebraska, at this intersection, is that despite the work and the effort in order to get there, once you got there and you really sunk into it, there was a lot of beauty to be found. What we're going to see this morning, Luke 22, 23, and 24, is an intersection. And we have been working toward this intersection for eight months. We have arrived, if you've been walking through this Bible initiative, the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we've arrived at the climax. We're going to read the end of the book of Luke over the course of this week. It's what we're going to teach about today. And it is the high point in all of Scripture. Everything up to this point has been leading to it, and everything after this point is going to point backward toward it. We've arrived at the climax of the narrative of the Bible. We've arrived at the greatest human reality of all history. And it's an intersection. In fact, it is the intersection of the unavoidable reality of God's righteous anger towards sin and the unfathomable depth of his love for sinners. That is what the intersection is. And we've been working toward it over the course of the year, and today, here we are, and that's kind of the zoomed out picture. That's what we've been doing every Sunday. Let's take a zoomed out look at whatever portion of scripture we're going to be reading over the course of this week, and let's see how it fits into the whole. But we do something else as well. We take a very specific kind of zoomed in microscopic look at what our text is that day. And so we're going to apply that same framework today. Generally, we're seeing God's righteous anger towards sin meet with, intersect with his unfathomable love for sinners. Zoomed in in a very specific way, we're going to see that what happens on the cross is according to the will of the Father through the work of humanity and the willingness of the Son. And all we're going to do this morning is we're going to read some large portions of Luke and we're going to unpack those three statements, as, uh, those two statements as they come to us. And so I'm going to begin, if you'll follow along with me, in Luke 22, verse 1. <clears throat> now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at a table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's the first mental note I want you to make. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Going on, verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it 
until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. I'll make a mental note of this next statement. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at a table or one who serves? And he answers his own question. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Third statement to pay attention to. But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack And the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said with them, it is enough. Jesus makes four statements during the course of dinner that further clarify something he has made mention to numerous times over the course of his ministry. And that is that the son must suffer. I've eagerly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. The son of man goes as it has been determined. This verse, this scripture must be fulfilled. He was numbered among the transgressors. I am among you as one who serves. What Jesus is referring to is that he is about to pay the price of God's righteous anger towards sin. In broadest terms, he is referring to the truth that God can have nothing to do with sin. It must or cannot be overlooked. It has to be paid for. His very character demands it. And there are some who would like to overlook that reality. Some within Christianity would like to overlook that reality. Some on the outside of Christianity would like to overlook that reality. But scripture makes itself abundantly clear that this cannot be the case. There is an unavoidable reality of God's righteous anger towards sin. And I use the word unavoidable for two reasons. The first is that it's unavoidable in its very nature. And that's where we actually started the year. We began the year looking at the creation account and saying that in the very act of creation, God begins to display for us the reality of his character. He's going to unfold it all throughout scripture, but it begins right in the very act of creation. And one of the primary characteristics of who God is is that he's holy, which means other. He is different than us. 
and in his holiness, he can have nothing to do with sin. You cannot read throughout scripture and avoid that reality. He has righteous anger toward sin. Here's the second reason I use the word unavoidable. Even if you were to sit down with the Bible and not know a lot about Christianity or who God is or what Scripture is saying, you would walk away convinced that of all the things that Scripture talks about, one of them is that God has this wrath towards sin. In fact, if you were to want to avoid that, it would require a lot of creative thinking. You would have to ignore large portions of the Bible. You would have to try to explain away very explicit statements that God makes about sin itself, and then he also makes about people who are sinning. And if you've got to work that hard to make the Bible say something that you want it to say, the reality is that it probably doesn't say that thing. If you've got to work really hard to get the Bible to say something different than what appears very apparent, it probably doesn't say that. And so what we've seen over the course of this year, if you've been reading along with us or attending on Sundays, is that repeatedly we get pictures of God's righteous anger towards sin. It began in the garden. Adam and Eve sin, and God sends them out of the garden. He cannot be with them. He is separate. He cannot be part of that. And the flood account, the sin of humanity over the face of the earth has become so great that God brings just judgment upon humanity in a flood. In the account of the Exodus, God displays his power over Egypt, particularly Pharaoh's sinfulness. And he gains glory for himself, for his judgment upon them. When the Israelites are sent into the promised land, they're supposed to drive out the nations that live there. What is the purpose of that? Well, God wants a land where his people can live with him. And it requires driving out those who are worshiping other things, those who are sinning in particular ways. We saw it in the exile as Israel's sin had grown and grown and grown. And uh, God sends them out of the land that he had promised them. You cannot avoid the reality of God's righteous anger toward sin. But if you read all of Scripture you would also come to a very clear understanding that God has a plan for that. In fact, he's had an eternally existent plan. He's been talking about it since the garden. And maybe the clearest description of that plan is in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, we read this around Easter. It's one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies about the suffering servant, that there would be one who would come and bear the iniquity of all. He would be numbered among the transgressors. So I want to read a portion of Isaiah 53 to you. It says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the suffering servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered among the transgressors. Unavoidable reality of God's righteous anger towards sin. It demands payment. Isaiah 53 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Sin is a reality in the heart of every individual. It's not Sin is not behavior necessarily, it is a heart condition of brokenness within every human being. And God has anger toward that. And so, according to the will of the Father, the Son is going to suffer and absorb the righteous anger of God toward sin. And you may be saying at this point, that kind of makes God seem like a monster, that he would be angry about sin and therefore kill his son? Doesn't that make God kind of monstrous? Well, let's continue on. I'm going to pick up in Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not alone. Peter's not interested in names. And after an interval of about an hour... Still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now there were men who were holding Jesus in custody. They were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophecy, who was it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. What comes next is that Jesus goes on trial. He goes on trial before the religious elite of the day. He goes on trial before a man named Pilate. 
then before a man named Herod. Then he's sent back to Pilate a second time, and he's delivered to be crucified. And all of that illustrates one fact. You cannot read through all of that without seeing the reality that it is human beings doing this. It is according to the will of the Father, but it is through the work of humanity. Judas leads a crowd out. There's a scuffle in the garden. They arrest him and take him. There's a group of people beating him. He's handed over to this council who tries him, to Pilate who tries him, to Herod. And then this is the way all of this ends before Jesus goes to be crucified. It's Luke 23, verse 25. It's Pilate that it's being referenced. It said, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The will of the crowd. The will of the religious leaders of the day. The Bible is full of paradox. Two things that seem like they cannot both be true at the same time and yet are. That exaltation comes through humility. That strength is found in weakness. That Jesus is 100% God and yet he's also 100% Man, One of the great paradoxes, both in all of Scripture and in our lives, is that God is 100% sovereign, and yet we absolutely make choices. And it seems like those cannot possibly exist simultaneously alongside each other, yet they absolutely do. And one of the places you see that most clearly is in Jesus' crucifixion. He just said at dinner, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And yet then you see a string of people make a decision to make it happen. Some of the most beautiful pieces of Christianity are found right in the center of those paradoxes. And this is one of those. Let's continue on. Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting from him. But he turned to them, and Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the womb that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For they For they do these things when the wood is green. What will happen when it is dry? And two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified him. The criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the Son of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Which is what anyone would say in that situation. If you are the Christ, save yourself. And while you're at it, me. Save me too. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light faded. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. On the way to his death at the hands of sinful and sinning humanity, Jesus is literally pleading for their forgiveness. He's about to bear the just punishment for all sin of all of humanity in response to the righteous anger of God towards sin. And that is how he is acting. The question is, why? Because of the unfathomable unfathomable depth of his love for sinners. We've seen that all throughout Scripture. Think back even over the passages I already mentioned this morning. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. The Bible makes it clear that the wage of sin is death, and yet they walk out alive. In the midst of the flood, God preserves humanity through the family of Noah. He makes a promise with a man named Abraham that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through his family line. In the midst of the Exodus, he preserves the Israelite people after the conquest in the promised land. When the Israelites begin to stumble into sin, he repeatedly raises up for them a judge, a savior to rescue them from their oppression. After the exile, he brings them back. God has this righteous anger towards sin, and yet he's got this unfathomable love for sinners. And now here we are at the cross of Jesus Christ and you see both on perfect display. Jesus hanging on the cross, numbered among the transgressors, the weight of the sin of all of humanity placed upon his shoulders and there he is willingly, voluntarily suffering and crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. the intersection of the unavoidable reality of God's righteous anger towards sin and the depth of his unfathomable love for sinners, and we see it in the willingness of the Son. He is willing to suffer. I hope if you read this over the course of the week or even if you've just been listening this morning, see how chaotic the last like 24 to 36 hours of Jesus' life are. He has dinner with his friends, He's praying in the garden when one of his friends leads a group of men to betray him. And all hell breaks loose. There's a scuffle in this garden. One guy grabs a sword and swipes off another guy's ear and Jesus picks it up and puts it back on. He willingly gives himself to be arrested. He stands multiple trials. He gets beat on numerous occasions. He's mocked by a group of guards. He stands absolutely silent while a group of people chant for his death and his crucifixion. There are people lining the streets while he's carrying his, his own cross to the place of his imminent death. Women are re weeping on the side of the road. They get to the place where they're going to be crucified. They hoist him up on the cross, and there's a criminal. there are criminals on both sides of him bickering over him in the middle, and yet he's having a conversation with them. He's just totally calm. Chaos all around him. And he's totally calm because he is willing. 
This hasn't been foisted upon him by some monstrous God. This is the willing choice of a God who so deeply loves sinners. And so he suffers on the cross. And right there, we see the intersection of God's righteous anger towards sin and his unfathomable love for sinners. That intersection is the cross at Calvary. It is the person and life and work of Jesus Christ. It has been the primary tension that all of Scripture has been leading to up to this point and that everything is going to flow out of from this point going forward. God can have nothing to do with the sin of humanity, and yet he wants everything to do with sinning humans. He longs for a people devoted to him in worship, proclaiming the greatness of his glory throughout all the earth. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, those two things come together perfectly. Is God 100% wrath and justice and anger towards sin? You better believe it. But is he 100% love and grace and mercy? Yes. How can he be both, you say? Look at the cross. The perfect display of both. It's a paradox that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, and yet contained within it is the immeasurably great, indescribably beautiful, incomprehensible goodness of the glory of the gospel. And you probably tend toward one side or the other. You probably sit here this morning and you tend to think of God as angry and mad about sin and weighing on you. You think that he causes guilt within you, or you might be here this morning thinking that God is the extreme other, that he is passive towards sin, that he's uncaring, that he can overlook it, that he's not upset about it. And the reality is that he is totally both of those in perfect measure. And we see it at the cross. I want to go back to my story about Macon, Nebraska. We wake up early on this Saturday morning and my wife and I drive behind my mom and dad and my sister up to Macon, Nebraska. We arrive there for the memorial service. We take a left at the intersection that has no stop sign and we go to this little Lutheran church. And I've not been inside this Lutheran church. I've not been in Macon, Nebraska for more than about 17 seconds when somebody walks up to me and says, you're a Fritzen. To which I want to reply, you're creepy. How could you possibly know that? And then the people kind of start filing in, and we don't know anybody other than you know, my uncle and, and his wife and my dad and you know, my immediate family. And so I've made my way into like a corner of this reception hall inside this church, and there's a book there. It's huge, and on every page is a photo all the way back into the 1800s of every confirmation class that's come through this Lutheran church. I start flipping my way through it. There's a Fritzen in every picture. And I'm in the twilight zone. I didn't know this place existed. I honestly, for like 27 years of my life, I thought my immediate family and my dad's brother and his family, I thought we were the only Fritzens on the face of the planet. And yet, there's a whole crop of them, and they live in Macon, Nebraska. It was over the course of that day, in seeing the beauty of this place that's got an intersection with no stop sign that's a little bit difficult to find, that I realized that intersection literally gave me life. If you continue down O Road, 
beyond the little Lutheran church, there is a farm that comes up on the left side of the road. That farm is the place where when my family long ago immigrated to America from Germany, they bought that land, and it has been in the Fritzen family forever. The little graveyard behind the Lutheran church in Macon, Nebraska, is full of tombstones that read Fritzen on the top. That little intersection gave me life. It took work to get there. I didn't even really know it existed. It takes a little bit of work to dig down to the bottom of exactly what's happening on the cross. But when you get there and you see the intersection of the unavoidable reality of God's righteous anger towards sin and his unfathomable depth of love towards sinners, you realize that in that spot, there is life. There's no stop sign there. You can't come to that intersection too sinful to be accepted. You cannot come to that intersection with too much going on that God would somehow reject you. There is life there for all who would choose to place their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the most beautiful intersection in all of human history. And this morning, afternoon, what I want to do is hold out that intersection to you. And to say that if you've not arrived there and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're missing reckoning with the most important decision that you will ever make. But the story goes on. Because it's not actually done there. Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried in a tomb. And Luke chapter 23 ends this way. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, verse 53. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever been yet laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. And this is what I could not get over as I read this week. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It's because this story has an unbelievable ending. The resurrection is an unbelievable ending. And so what? I mean, what what do you do with that? Well, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrection is the ultimate sign of hope. Not only did Jesus die on the cross for your sin, but he also raised triumphantly on the third day from the grave. And you have hope 
because of that, that you've placed your faith not in a dead man on a cross, but in a risen and reigning Savior. And he is coming back again. And you find yourself at the cross where you lay down your sin. You humbly come before Jesus Christ, admitting that you're a sinner, placing your faith in him to forgive you. And then, like Peter, you run to the tomb and see that it is empty and it gives you hope going forward. What I want to do this morning as we, we close up, worship team, you can come on up, is you might be here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. There are two different accounts in Luke 23. It's actually verses 47 and 48. Two different sets of people witness what's happening to Jesus. This is what it says. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. It's verse 47. Verse 48. And the crowds that clamored for his death it says, all the crowds that had been assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to see the intersection there at the cross. When they saw what had taken place. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and maybe you're not ready to do that this morning, I would encourage you, read Luke 22, 23, 24 every day for the next week. And see that intersection. If you are a believer, we need to run to that empty tomb just like Peter. This is what Luke 24, 11 and 12 said. The women come back, they report what they've seen at the tomb, and these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we need to run to that empty tomb. We need to run to that cross, the intersection of God's character, and we need to marvel at what we see. When life is hard and God feels distant, you run to those two places and marvel. When it seems like everything's going your way and blessings are flowing and you can't exactly figure out why, you run to the cross. You run to the tomb and you marvel. When you're falling into sin and you feel stuck and it feels like God could not possibly forgive you for that thing, yet again, you run yourself to the cross and to the tomb and you marvel. You never outgrow that as a Christian. Just because you arrived there one time and placed your faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean you never go back. You go back moment by moment. And last but not least, it's one of the very last verses in Luke 24. Or Luke 24. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And as he does, this is what we're told the disciples did. They worshiped him. That doesn't mean they showed up somewhere and they sang a couple of songs. It means they literally gave their lives to following him. And Luke's going to go on in the book of Acts and explain exactly what that looks like. The epistles are going to flesh it out for us. But worship becomes this all of life response to the willing sacrifice of the son's life. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, worship begins there. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Worship is an all-of-life, everyday surrendering to allowing the glory of God to work in and through you, to allow the kingdom of God to expand around you. It is an all-of-life response to the willing sacrifice of the Son, and we are going to end our time together worshiping. Sound good? Stand up, let's sing.